0: pray, and then we'll spend some time in the text this morning. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you once again for sending your Son to come and die on the cross for our sins. And we ask that as we contemplate him this morning and what he's done on the cross for us, I I ask that your Spirit would be moving, not only one, just to impress upon our our heart the the value and the importance of the gospel but also that you would work in our hearts to want to embrace the gospel with the all the implications of it and then go out and share the the gospel with others we thank you so very much for sending him and for the promises that are ours through Jesus Christ we say this in your son's name amen this morning, I was on the phone with, with Robert uh, Zink up there in Longview. And uh, we were discussing our sermons with each other. And kind of just was asking him how he's doing and what are you preaching on this morning. He told me, he asked me. Anyways, in, in the midst of the conversation, uh, we started to talk about what is the the real definition of what does it mean to be ...to be a Christian? That's a thats a big question, right? That's a huge question. What does it mean to be a Christian? And, and last night, as I was working on on this morning's sermon... ...if you were to walk into my office... ...you would have saw a whole bunch of systematic theologies... ...from different people. Uh, there was a Roman Catholic... ...and an Orthodox... ...and an Anglican... ...and all these other ones. And each one of them had a radically different idea of what does it mean to be a Christian. Uh, they have some similarities, but, but they're different. And even in talking to a whole bunch of people and asking them about what does it mean to be a Christian, there is a spectrum of answers. Uh, stretching from one, expect, from one side, saying, I'm not a sinner, I haven't done anything wrong, God's going to accept me just as I am. Two, I am a terrible person and I need to reform and then maybe God may accept me because of what I've done. It's sad, but I haven't really heard the right answer, which is I'm bad, I can do nothing, but praise the Lord that he sent Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross for my sins. And because of what he's done, I can then have a right relationship with him. Now, our problem isn't necessarily that there are other views outside these walls. That's a problem, but that's not, that's not really our problem. Our problem is that they exist, and then they come in to influence how you and I think about Christianity. In fact, I think that some of these alternate Gospels and some of these alternate explanations of what does it mean to become a Christian have become so embedded in our thinking that when we start looking at the Scripture we automatically reinterpret the scripture to meet what we've picked up outside, to the point that when we see statements in the Bible that are so clear, they almost seem a little foreign to us because we've collected all of this baggage. Now, I I could probably go on, and I don't want to preach my sermon before I actually preach the sermon. Uh, I want to get into the text. Uh, I, I could go on for hours ranting and raving, but This morning, this is what we're going to talk about. The true nature of what does it mean to be a Christian. And it's kind of interesting that this is what we're going to find in Proverbs chapter 16, verses 5 and 4. We're going to to talk about our relationship with the Lord. And these these verses that we're going to talk about, uh, I, I was going to just go through them quickly, and then I realized there is... There are so much wonderful things here, and these passages, these verses, are often misunderstood. And so I, I thought it was important for us to take some time to, to look at them. And this morning, I just want to show you two things from this text in Proverbs 16, verses 5 through 6. The first being in first fi- in verse 5, dealing with our relationship with the Lord. we got to realize that there are some people who have a bad relationship with the Lord, right? Right? Um, they're not in the right kind of relationship. Uh, G- God is not their father. He is their judge. He is not their savior. He is the one that is going to send them to hell. So we're going to see that in verse 5. We're going to see the wrath of God. There are those who are under the wrath of God. Verse 6, we're going to see those who are in the right kind of relationship with the Lord. So allow me to read this, and then we'll kind of we'll look at, at these verses. So notice in verse 5, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Now, I want to say this before we start explaining any of this. We got to remember the genre of the book of Proverbs, okay? We are dealing with principles and we're in the section of the book of Proverbs that really is comparing and contrasting two things, okay? So as we've seen throughout this section, on the one hand, the wise people, the righteous people, this is what they look like. This is what they do. This is their characteristic. On the other hand, we see the foolish person. This is the character, the attitude of the foolish person. This section is not telling us what to do, it is telling us what we will find with a wise person and what we will find with a foolish person. That's an important thing to remember in this, in this section and, and it, throughout the book of Proverbs here as we're going through, that Solomon is not necessarily giving us a how-to to become wise, per se. He's giving us a portrait of wise people and a portrait of a foolish person. So these are their characteristics, It's also important to remember that there is some flow to the book of Proverbs and in this section in Proverbs 16, at least from verses 1 to 9, are really dealing with the subject of God's sovereignty as it relates to man and his responsibility and as Solomon is working through this sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, he has made a couple statements and he's now explaining those statements. Right, So if you remember last week, uh, just, just in verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, meaning he has the final say. All the ways of man are clean in his own sight. Now that's an important thing we're going to see here in, in verse 5, that really man is willing to justify almost anything he does, and he thinks that what he's doing is right. And then it says, but the Lord weighs the motives, meaning we're not adequate judges of ourself. We're not good judges of what we've done. So we all give ourselves kind of an A, B... for what we did this morning, right? This morning I did pretty good. I give myself about an A. We're not good at that. The Lord is. And then, and then in verse 3 we talked about how... Uh, this is what the Lord expects for us to commit our ways to Him. And then in verse 4 he says... God has made everything for His own purpose... Even the wicked in the day of evil. And the question may arise, well, how does this work out? How does this all come together with God's sovereignty and and with man's responsibility and with the evil person and the evil person being punished? And verse 5 offers an interesting perspective on how this happens. How is it possible for someone to look at all of the things that they've done and say, this is right, How is it possible that God allows these persons to go to hell? And in verse 5 is that explanation. Notice what he says. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord and he will surely not be unpunished. So, we see that there is a connection of pride here. When he's describing somebody who is justifying themselves, we could say at the root, the root of that sin, there is this arrogance and this pride that I am righteous because of what I've done. Now, it is interesting how Solomon puts this. He goes, everyone who is proud. Now, I, I, I would say that pride and arrogance are synonyms. However, there is a slight difference in my mind between the two words of pride and arrogance. And I make the distinction like this. Pride seems to lean more towards look at how good I am because of the stuff I've done. Okay, that's normally what pride is, okay? So sinful pride is looking at my accomplishments. Arrogance just says, I am good because look at me, right? That's arrogance. Arrogance is, I'm good just because of who I am. I, it, need, it doesn't need accolades to to say that I'm good. And so here, notice that this, because he uses the word pride, and it does have this inflated view of oneself, an improper view of oneself, and using the word pride here may may indicate that this person is looking at their accomplishments and judging themselves based off their accomplishments. But notice how deep this pride goes. Everyone who is proud in heart. We're not talking about someone who struggles with pride here. We're not talking about somebody who sometimes lets their pride sneak out. We're talking about someone where pride has captured their heart. And is ruling in the heart. Remember. We're talking about two different types of people here. The characteristics of two different types of people. When we see a fool. What do we expect? We expect somebody who's so given over. To their pride. That it's in their heart. In the way that they make decisions. And notice what what is said about this person. The one who is. Proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment. The person is an abomination. I believe that what this ultimately means is that the Lord will send them to hell, that they are under the wrath of God. That's what it is. That's what he means here by an abomination. But I just thought it was interesting that he calls the proud person an abomination. And then when you think about how easy it is to commit the sin of pride. The sin of pride is a lot like carbon monoxide poisoning, right? It's there. It affects the way you think. But you can't really smell it or detect it. But when you see somebody who has it, you go, yeah, there's, that, there's something wrong. And, and, and think about it. How many of us, when we're going through all of our sins, we go, you know, I was really proud today. I really was really proud, and, and I really need to ask for forgiveness. Normally, because a proud person struggles with pride, they normally don't see their own shortcomings because they're proud. But I think it's interesting that this is included in the list of some of the things that we find as an abomination. So, for, for example, we've already seen that it's an abomination to have idolatry. It's already uh, the way of the wicked in, in chapter 15, verse 9, is an abomination Uh, We're going to see anyone who justifies the actions of a wicked person is an abomination. Anyone who condemns the righteous is also an abomination. We've already seen that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Anytime that you plan evil, that's an abomination to the Lord. When the wicked make a sacrifice, that's an abomination to the Lord. There's a whole bunch of sexual sins in the law that are an abomination to the Lord. And the big one is any time that we have idolatry and we worship anything other than the Lord, that it's also an abomination to the Lord. Having, uh, having unfair business practices, those are also an abomination to the Lord. And this is added to the list. Anyone who is proud... Pride is an abomination, and that person will suffer the wrath of God. And notice that that's really what Solomon has in mind here because notice the second part of this assuredly, he will not be unpunished, meaning that this person will suffer a, a demise at the end of his life. And I think Solomon is not thinking of the temporal consequences, though there will be temporal consequences. I think he's thinking of the ultimate consequence that this person will be separated from God forever, and and they're conscious that they're separated from God forever, and they will be suffering under the wrath of God. As I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking, how does this, what happens if somebody is really proud in heart, and they start coming to church? This is obviously speaking of a fool. What What happens when that pride takes root, and as it becomes full-blown. What, what, what happens when it, when it produces its fruit? What does that fruit look like? And what does that, that, that type of religion look like? There, there's numerous examples that we could point to, but there's one that, that I thought was really appropriate. It was found in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10. What happens when pride takes root in a person's heart? What does that look like? Notice in, in Romans 10, we'll start in verse 1. Notice what Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now, Paul is talking about the Jews, right? His people. And Paul is saying, look, I, it, is, it is my heart's desire that God saves them. I, I want salvation for the Jews, In fact, he's even stated earlier that he'd be willing to give up his own salvation for the Jews. But notice as he gives his judgment of them in verse 2, he says, For I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I get sweat every time I read that verse because of the implication of that verse. Think of the implication of that verse. And if it doesn't scare the pants off of you, it should. This verse indicates that it is possible for someone to have great zeal, expend great energy in the name of God without knowing God. That is scary, right? Because the first thought I, th- I thought was, well, what about me? You know, I've done a lot of things for the Lord. Am I doing this? And I don't know the Lord? Because it's possible, right? I mean, it's possible for us to meet somebody who has great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not because they know the Lord. That's scary. I think of so many Christians that I've met, or they called themselves Christians, and I walked away going, wow, that person has a lot of zeal for the Lord. They must be a believer because they got great zeal for the Lord. This passage says that's not necessarily the case. Just because somebody has zeal doesn't mean that it's the right kind of zeal. And notice then what he says in verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness, and notice this, and seeking to establish their own. That, my friends, is what pride looks like when it comes into a person's heart and that pride begins to germinate and when it becomes full-blown and full-bloom, What does that look like? That looks like a whole bunch of people that are trying to establish their own righteousness. They're trying to say, look at all of the good things that I've done. Look at all of the right things I've done. I've done all the right practices. I've gone to all the right classes. I have the right Bible translation in front of me. I've gone to the right church. I've been there every Sunday. God has to accept me on the basis of what I've done. I've done and I've accumulated all of these right things. God will have to accept it. This is that great zeal. All of this stuff that that these Jews were doing, thinking that they were becoming right with God. And Paul says they don't even know about it because they're seeking to establish their own. And then notice what he says next. Not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And what I think he means here is that righteousness which comes from God. We'll have to think back to the time when we talked in the book of Galatians. Remember, the gospel, the power of the gospel is that I am unworthy of anything. I am unworthy of the right relationship with God. I am incapable of getting that. I am not right with him, but God, because of his grace, intervened in my life and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die on the cross for me. And that when I place my faith on him... I am imputed with the righteousness of Christ. That righteousness which he accumulated on earth is then given to me. And so now I'm seen as righteous because of what he's done. The Jews here and lots of people in our own day are trying to establish their own righteousness, forsaking that righteousness which comes on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus. They're trying to do it for themselves, something that's already been paid for. That's what pride looks like. This is a dangerous thing. This is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing when it comes inside of the church because it's possible for you and I to listen to these people, to be inspired by these people and say, well, it is. I do got to do something. I do have to contribute something. It's dangerous. If you don't think it's dangerous, then reread the book of Galatians. Remember when we were in the book of Galatians? Even Peter and Barnabas struggled with this thought. Paul says in the book of Galatians, if anyone comes and preaches a different gospel, even if it's me, the apostle Paul, if I come back in a year later and I'm preaching a different gospel, don't listen to me. The implication is the temptation is real for us to have pride, to establish our own righteousness, forsaking that righteousness which is given to us on the basis of Christ Jesus. It's possible for us to struggle with pride, even if we do believe in the gospel, it's possible for us then to jettison the work of the Holy Spirit, jettison what he's doing, jettison the biblical sanctification process, and us go, okay, Jesus, you started the ball rolling, now I will complete it by my own obedience. It's bad. That's bad. That's that's the type of stuff that happens with with this type of teaching. You can understand then... ...somebody who rejects God... ...rejects his offer of righteousness... ...rejects his Holy Spirit... ...rejects what he says in his revealed word... ...you can imagine why God is not so happy with that one person. And so here in the book of Proverbs... When he says, look, the person who has pride in their own heart is an abomination, it makes sense because this person is rejecting the revealed will of God, rejecting Christ and rejecting that righteousness which comes on the basis of faith. Now, if we go back to Proverbs, we've dealt a little bit with this wrath. We then get to maybe, maybe in Christian circles, one of the more uh, controversial texts here notice what is said in Proverbs 16.6 it says by loving kindness and truth iniquity is atoned for when I look at this phrase and I see loving kindness and truth put together by the way truth it may be better translated faithfulness and there are many Hebrew grammarians who say these words should be put together so it should read Loving faithfulness instead of loving kindness and truth loving and kindness loving kindness and truth may be misleading so here when you put those two words together, this loving faithfulness it, it speaks of faith and then then I see this verse as saying faith then is the basis for the atonement of sin it, meaning this that God alone can provide atonement for sin. We apprehend that atonement by faith. Okay, that's what I think is being said here. You can see how easily this could be turned around, right? I mean, it has been for centuries. This is the passage that is used by the Roman Catholic Church to sell indulgences. This, this verse is their justification. They say, look, if you do an act of love or speak some kind of truth, you can atone for your own sins. Now they will say, now ultimately Christ atones for sins, but there's, there's still sins that you can atone for to lessen some of your punishment, to lessen some of your time in purgatory. If you know anything about history, you know that it was the, the selling of indulgences that was the spark that let the, that lit the powder keg of the Great Reformation, right? It was Martin Luther who spoke out against the church selling indulgences. And the church at the time was saying, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Literally, you could pay money to get people out of purgatory. And this was the passage that was used as justification. You can understand how controversial this passage could get even even jewish scholars i read a jewish commentary they said this is the perfect summation of judaism that when a person repents of their sins and reforms their life you can have atonement for sin think of that think of what they're saying Now, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I I think loving kindness and truth should be going together. And it demonstrates that it is faith. And notice that type of faith that's described. It's much more than just an intellectual ascension to, yeah, I know there was some guy named Jesus who lived somewhere over there. And at some time in the past when they didn't wear pants and they all wore robes, he died on a tree. I believe that. I guess now I'm going to heaven. It's much more than that. It's much more than just saying, yeah, I believe he died on the cross for me. This is one who is placing their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Forsaking all other methods of salvation. It is Jesus. Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus alone. That's it. He died on the cross for me. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. That's what I'm trusting. Nothing else. There's no act I can do There's no attitude I can have. It is truly looking to Christ, begging for mercy, pleading, throwing myself on his open arms, saying, I am trusting in you and nothing else. That's the type of faith that's described here. And notice that as Solomon is talking, it's this type of faith, which is the basis which we can have our sins atoned for. Kind of interesting, this word atonement. Uh, the, the very basic word, meaning of the word, means to cover. And a lot of times when I've heard people talk about this word atonement and cover, they, they made it sound like it was like a tarp over a boat, right? Like, I put my tarp over my boat. That's atonement. It's covered. That, that's not really what the word means. The word is actually, uh, was used for when they were signing contracts and the contract was, was, was fulfilled and somebody would blot out either what was owed or the what they were supposed to do with more ink. They couldn't erase the ink, so they would blot it out and cover it with more ink. And so the, the idea of atonement then became this idea of something that covers something that changes the relationship between two people. And, and in essence what it means is it means is this reconciliation. And and the English really points that out. The word atonement is actually just two words put together. It's the word at and the word one. So really the word atonement is at one. And that's really the idea of reconciliation. And so for us, when we say, how is one right with God? One is right with God because what if Jesus Christ has done. We apprehend that by faith and God brings us to him. Thus we are now reconciled with our creator. There is now peace between us. Beautiful picture here, by the way. That is by faith and faith alone that I have my I have this right relationship with God on the basis of Jesus Christ. Now, I see the second part of this, this verse as a synthetic parallelism, meaning he's not saying the same thing twice, but he's adding something new here. And notice what he says, and he says, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So there's the first part, which is faith, and I now have this... Right relationship with God. And then after that, then comes then this second aspect of the fear of the Lord, which then keeps me away from evil. I think this is a beautiful picture that we de- when, we, when we come in a right relationship with God, it's on the basis of faith. After that act of faith, we then enter into the sanctification process. And by the power of the Spirit, we're saying yes to what is right and no to what is wrong. We're yielding to the Spirit. We're listening to the Word of God. And we're saying yes to what He wants, and no, knowing that our empowerment is not from ourselves, but is from God, who is empowering us to do what is right. And so here then is this beautiful dovetail of you're right with God, and the expectation of the believer and the follower of God is then to have this attitude that takes God seriously, and desires to live a holy life. That is a product of the first. I am reconciled with God, imputed with the righteousness of Christ. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, now I can have the fear of the Lord to turn away from evil. I think it's a beautiful picture here and beautifully described. As we've discussed already in the book of Proverbs, I think it's important for us as believers to really take God seriously. And I think that's what this idea of fear means. It's not that I'm afraid of him as to run away from him, but that I fear him as the creator God. I take him seriously. It's a fear of like a son towards a father that I don't want to disappoint him. It's a fear of understanding the character of God and the nature of God, of understanding why he's asking me what to do. I'm taking it all serious. And when I take the Lord serious, notice what the description looks like. The description looks like one that stays away from evil. That's that's the natural consequence of fearing the Lord. I'm going to stay away from evil. One does not go to heaven because they stay away from evil because you can't. The only way that you could stay away from evil is the power of the Spirit and God intervening in your life. Other than that, you are hopelessly lost and depraved and bent towards sin. It is only because of the power of the Spirit that we can ever have any victory over sin. So as I was thinking this morning about this text and some of these wonderful truths, uh, and, and I was talking on the phone with Robert uh, Zink, uh, one of the, as we were talking, a quote came up, and, and, and I thought it was a great quote and fit. It was by a guy who, who lived in Europe a long time ago, back when Europe was still considered a Christian place. And, and essentially, he said something close to this When everybody claims to be a Christian, meaning in the country, and everybody's born a Christian, be sure that no one is a Christian. That's what he said. When everybody claims to be a Christian, sure nobody's a Christian. And his idea was, just imagine, he was from Germany. So when you were born in Germany at the time, you were automatically baptized into the Lutheran church. You were Lutheran. That was it. You were, you were called a Christian from that moment. You were always a Christian. Always part of it. Always part of it. And what ended up happening was the German church started getting intertwined with the German government, <laughs> And what ended up happening was the governmental goals became the church's goals. And what ended up happening was it became in vogue and cultural to be part of the church. And so the church became what was then later termed cultural Christianity. Now some of you probably can think ahead until I understand some of the dangerous implications of those things, right? The same thing happened in England, right? Where When you were born in England, you're part of the Anglican Fellowship. That's it. And it's that cultural Christianity which can justify great amount of sin, and people think that they're still doing God's bidding when they're actually doing the biddings of man. All because they had a faulty definition of what does it mean to be a Christian. It's interesting thinking of England back in the early 1800s, there was a movement to stop slavery throughout the British Empire. And there was a group of believers who spoke out against slavery using the Bible. One of those men, his name was Wilberforce. He actually wrote a book combating what he called cultural Christianity versus biblical Christianity. And he discussed that that there was no hope for the culture anymore. Because... Everything has become so intertwined and synchronized together. And, and it, was this, it, it was this bad marriage of all of these things that should never have come together that allowed this inhumane treatment of Africans going to their country, kidnapping them, throwing them on a boat, and then selling them. It was this cultural Christianity that offered the justification for that. He argues that it's the biblical Christianity of those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ those who take the word seriously and don't look to the culture but look to the word, that that's where the real hope for England was found. And I would say that's still the same hope for the United States. It's the biblical Christianity. It's Jesus. For us, as we're thinking through the culture right now, there's a lot of stuff up in the air. What do we do? I don't care. It's all about Jesus. We're supposed to get back to the word, right? Right? We, we should want a biblical Christianity. And a biblical Christianity can do a lot more than any cultural Christianity could ever dream of doing. But it all begins with this most important question of how is one right with God? And as believers, we need to be focused, laser-focused, laser-focused. And it needs to be tattooed on our minds that the gospel is the most important message and that the message that we talk about the most and we are the clearest in defining must be this gospel message. All those other things can be secondary because they are secondary. The gospel is the most important thing and it must be on our minds that this is the most important thing. And so my challenge to you this morning is to act like a wise person and to realize that the most important thing is people's relationship with the Lord. The most important thing is first asking yourself, do I have a proper relationship with the Lord? Am I one of those people that just thought because I said some prayer or walked down some aisle that now I'm right with God, but never have placed my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone? I would challenge you to think about that first and foremost. Ask yourself that question. Am I right with God right now? Then as you think through then other people's problems, then realize the most important problem, the most important thing is are they right with God? Are they right with the Lord? The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. As we interact with each other through these turbulent times, what's the thing that holds us together? The gospel. The gospel. What's the thing that, that must be saved above all other things? The gospel. It's the gospel. So may the Lord give us both the will and the ability to be gospel-centered, Christ-centered, biblically-centered. Let's go ahead and let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time that we've had in the text We just ask that as we go out this week that we would be focused on the gospel, focused on the truth of the gospel, and that we would see that as the most important message. Help us fight the temptation of being distracted by other things. And may may the gospel and the implication of the gospel be evident in our lives and evident in our speech. We thank you so very much for everything you blessed us with. And we just ask for your blessings on the rest of the day. In your son's name, amen.